this is a good time for us to remember uh, the blessing that we have to live in a country where we can still worship Jesus Christ openly without fear of reprisal. We don't have to live underground. You know, as Christians, we know that the greatest gift that we've been given is our salvation through Jesus Christ. But I think right up there, very close to that, is the gift of being able to worship in peace and safety. Amen? Okay, so we are in our summer series. It's called Walking with Pete. And it's a study of the book of 1 Peter. And last week, if you were with us, you remember that Jesus taught, or (laughs) Jeff, talked about the, the name Peter... Freudian slip, perhaps? (laughs) Pastor Jeff talked about the name Peter, meaning rock or hollow rock. And he was kind of explaining that Peter's encounters with Jesus was really filled that empty space. And then he used this imagery of a geode, which on the outside looks like an ordinary rock. But when you break it open, you see these really beautiful crystalline structures. So that was kind of the metaphor he used as he uh, brought the message last week. And he he used that to describe what he called seven jewels of that geode. And there's just seven things for us to think about as they pertain to our study of Peter. And we're going to dovetail off the first one of those jewels, which was about us and you being made holy. And if you remember, Peter was uh, was writing actually to uh, believers who had been dispersed from Jerusalem out of the Holy Land through all the regions uh, in the vicinity thereof. And he was letting them know that they were in their new faith being sanctified by the Spirit. And then the sanctification was of the Spirit. And he mentioned that sanctification really just means being made more like Jesus. And that purpose is for obedience to Jesus. The method is by the sprinkling with his blood. The end result is that grace and peace are multiplied to us. And ultimately, we are chosen by the Father... We are purchased by the Son, and we are set apart by the Spirit. Now, last year about this time, we were in a series about Holy Spirit. And I had the privilege of being, to, being able to talk with you about walking in the Spirit. Now, if you recall that, there are, I said there were three elements to a walk. There's proximity, there's common direction, and then there's engagement. So when we're thinking about walking with another person... And we're saying we're taking a walk with somebody. We have to be in physical proximity. And then it helps if we're going in the same direction. Um, And then there should be some sort of engagement. It doesn't have to be verbal. It can be nonverbal. But as you're walking with someone in relationship, there should be some engagement. So we said that a walk is not a spectator sport. You can't walk with somebody sitting on the couch. It requires actions. And so... When you overlay that physical construct of a walk into a spiritual life, we fulfill all of those elements through our praise and worship, what we're doing here, gathering with other believers and prayer and things like that. That's how we establish proximity, common direction, engagement in our spiritual life. So this weekend, we're taking a walk. But this time, we're going to focus in on holiness. Now, conceptually, walking in the spirit and walking in holiness are essentially the same. If you think about it, God is ultimately holy, therefore his spirit is holy. So when we talk about walking in the spirit, walking with Jesus, walking with God, walking in holiness, it's all pretty much the same thing. There's just different nuances and different approaches that we can take when we look at the individual components. So we're picking up our study. We're still in the first chapter of 1 Peter. 
And we are going to read verses 13 through 21. So if you are able, please stand with me as we read the Holy Word of God. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 27. And this is from the English Standard Version of the Bible. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written... You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray. Father God, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We ask that you would open our eyes so that we can see that light and that we can walk in step with you. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. So this section begins with the word therefore. Therefore, I just want to pause for a few minutes here. The word therefore, as you may know, is a hinge or it's a pointer. Anytime you see that word, it says you need to go consider what you just read because I told you all this so I could tell you this. And in the current case, the therefore refers to the previous 12 verses. And in those 12 verses, Paul was writing to uh, his believers that they were born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, that gar God guards us through our faith for that salvation. And then in all of this, we should rejoice even when life gets hard. And in fact, those hard times, those trials, are what test our faith. He said that the outcome of our faith is the salvation of our souls. And in all of that, God receives praise, glory, and honor whenever Christ is revealed. The therefore is important because it provides the context, the reason, and in this case, the end goal for the action that we are going to be called to take. Without that, Without that backstory, back we don't have any real reason or motivation to fight through the difficult times. So what is this call to action? Verse 13, therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now the first thing we see here, there is a requirement to do something. Now, for some of you, a little red flag might pop up and say, ooh, is he going to be talking about works theology? I hope this isn't works theology. No, it is not works theology. Works theology says in order to be saved, in order to receive that, it's not a gift. It's something you have to earn. You have to do certain things and then be saved. This is not what we're talking about here. The Bible is very clear that salvation 
is by faith alone, not based on what we do. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we read, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So our salvation is by faith alone, not based on what we do, but we are created in Christ to do, to do things. In Ephesians 2.10, the very next verse, it says, for we are his workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, for good doing, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. So what we're talking about is what we do after we receive the free gift of salvation. Okay, I want to make sure we're very clear about that. Now, as we are very fond of saying here at Faith Fellowship, if you only get one thing out of this message, get this. Okay, so this is the get this part. Romans 8.1 tells us very clearly that there is no condemnation for believers once you're in Christ. And what that means is the enmity that exists between God and non-believers, the sin debt that we still owe, the wrath and judgment that are coming for those who are not believers in Jesus Christ, all of that has been repaired. Jesus paid the price. He paid the sin debt. He repaired our relationship and restored our relationship. So when God looks at us as believers in Christ, he says, I don't condemn you for your sins anymore. Jesus took care of all that. Amen? There is no condemnation but there is an expectation. Jesus expects us to leave our lifestyle of sin and open rebellion. We see, see this in John chapter 5. Jesus had just healed the man who was paralyzed from birth. And in verse 14 we read, Afterwards Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Now look here, dude, you've been out of commission for a long time. I want you to live it up, get out there, live life, get caught back up, and don't worry about what you do because I got you covered. No, <laughs> that is not what he said. He said, see, you are well. Sin no more so that nothing worse may happen to you. In John chapter 8, Jesus is talking to the woman who was caught in adultery, and he had just finished chasing off all the accusers. And in verse 10, we read that Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No, Lord, no one. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Now go. And for heaven's sake, just be careful next time. Don't get caught. I got you covered. No, he didn't say that, did he? He said, Neither do I condemn you. So it reinforces there's no condemnation, but from now on, go and sin no more. That means what you were doing before, stop doing it. There's no ambiguity. It's stop doing what you were doing before. Make a change. In Luke chapter 19, with Zacchaeus, remember he was a tax collector who was very wealthy. He got very wealthy because he was cheating everybody. And he was double taxing and triple taxing them, and they hated him even more. But his encounter with Jesus was so profound that he made a willful decision to change his lifestyle. He said, going forward, I am no longer going to defraud people, which was his habit. And he said, not only that, but I'm going to pay back everything I owe and I'm going to do it four times over. And that was his willful change to his lifestyle. So that's what we're talking about. So we have this call to action. 
And it begins by preparing our minds. The Greek word here is adadzonumi. Do not try to say that three times fast. You will hurt yourself. And it literally translates to gird up your loins. And that's a reference back to when clothing was loose and free-flowing, which is really good if you live in a hot climate. You know, as, as odd as it may look these days, but it is very comfortable. Uh, but anytime you need to run or take some sort of physical action, uh, whether it's to fight or even just to work, you would have to grab all that extra material up and it, you do something very specific to tie it up so that you've got that freedom of mo motion. So that's kind of the imagery we have here. So the mind is where the walk in holiness begins. And then Peter adds this qualifier about being sober-minded. That word minded could also be translated or in spirit. So sober in mind or sober in spirit. The Greek word here is nepho, and it means calm and collected in spirit, temperate, dispassionate, and circumspect. Just mean being able to see all the facets, see the big picture. Now in common English, when we say sober, we usually are talking about being free from intoxicants. You say somebody's sober, that means they're not under the influence of drugs or alcohol. And that's just typical. That's the common usage. And intoxicants or intoxicating substances, they cloud our thinking. They literally change the way our brain processes information. And because the brain is connected to the body, if the mind is messed up, the body is messed up. And so our actions are impeded. Effective actions, whatever it is what we're trying to do. That's why we say don't drink and drive. Don't be under the influence because you can't effectively drive your car that way, right? And there are many kinds of intoxicants. We just said drugs and alcohol, that's the common one, okay. But success, power, wealth, uh, a whole host of things in our, in our lives can cloud our thinking and then impede our effective action. So our walk in holiness begins by freeing our minds from those things that cloud our thinking. Now, there's a whole lot more we could pull out of this verse, but I really want to get into this idea about being holy. In verse 15, it says, but as you are called, as you are called, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy since I am holy. Now, the Greek word here is hagios, and it has several meanings. But again, the one I want to focus in on is this idea of being set apart, to be exclusively his. Now, if you think about it, it's kind of a basic concept, just being set apart. But I believe that the idea has been somewhat distorted over time by some. So in our good faith efforts to create a clear distinction between what is of God and what is of the world, which is very important for us, that's part of that discernment that we read all throughout scripture, about being able to discern what is perfect and what is uh, imperfect. So that's very good. But I think, in some measure, uh, this idea has been gold-plated. They took it and they put the gold veneer around it. And then they, they got this really tall pedestal. And they put the pedestal at the far end of a really long room. And then up close where we are, they put a gate. And so somehow over time, this idea of holiness has been something that's really far off. And it's really just only attainable by a certain elite select few. Okay. Now, while it's true that only God is holy in his nature, we do receive that covering of holiness by grace and faith in Jesus Christ. 
So this idea of fencing, creating a, a barrier, yeah, we see that with the Pharisees. You know, so we had the laws of Moses. And, in, and when they started out, the Pharisees had a really good idea. They said, ooh, this law is really important. And we don't want our folks to break the law. So they created additional rules, right, in theory to protect the law itself. So they said, all right, if God's law says I can't cross this line, then we're going to draw a line way back here so that if somebody actually steps over that line, they haven't really violated the law of God. Like I said, great idea, but the problem is over time, the hedge laws became more important than the actual laws. Their directions became more important than God's directions. Okay. They created other rules, um, but it didn't work out. So, now, and we actually see that in some modern faith expressions. They take the veil of the temple that Jesus tore down and they put it back up. Amen. So this idea of holiness, I think, is very well described in the Old Testament, particularly as it pertained to the temple in Jerusalem. And I find it very instructive. So if you've ever read through all those details... You might have found yourself kind of rolling your eyes and going, wow, do we really need to know fine twined linen, grapes and pomegranates? And oh my goodness, why do we need all these details? Well, I think it's because it design, it's designed to, to give us the idea of how important this set apart in this thing is, being holy. And so in the temple, we had things that were set apart, things, the temple itself. So the temple itself was not a multi-purpose facility. You couldn't hold worship in the morning and then have a potluck in the afternoon and then bingo uh, in, in, in the evening, right? It just didn't work that way. The temple itself was specifically for the worship of God. Everything that went into the temple, all the furnishings, the altars, the lampstands, the tables, the, the gold veneer on the walls, everything was designed for just use in the temple. The utensils, the things that the priests and the Levites used, the shovels, the basins, the forks, the fire pans, all of that was also specifically created and used in the worship of the Lord. Even the clothes that the priests wore, their garments were special. The priest that was coming on duty that day couldn't wake up, throw on his uniform, go mow his grass, take out the garbage, maybe walk the dog on his way to temple. He couldn't do that because those clothes were specifically for use in the temple. So I just mentioned priests and Levites. There were also people. In addition to things, there were people who were set apart. So we also have prophets, right? And in the New Testament times, there are apostles. But these are individuals whose whole lives were dedicated to the service of God. And just like all the other things about the temple, it's all the focus is being exclusively devoted to the service of the Lord. So I think they really illustrate this idea of separate, of being set apart very well. Now, for something that was dedicated as holy to be used for unholy purposes clearly violates God's command. And that's reflected in Exodus, uh, the book of Exodus and book of Jeremiah. In Exodus 30, 37, it says, in the incense that you shall make, according to its composition, you shall not make for yourselves. It shall be holy, set apart to the Lord. They had a very specific formula for the incense. And I'm, I guess it was probably pretty good, right? So what God is saying is you can't take that formula, go make some for yourself, and then sell it on eBay. Right? You can't do that. In Jeremiah uh, chapter 30, verse 70, it says, For the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things, their unholy things, in the house that I called by my name to defile it. So it's an important thing. Uh, in my email communications this week uh, with Pastor Jeff, he said it this way. 
He said, you don't pour a beer or a Coke into a temple chalice or a communion cup. Amen. So, we have this call to action. All right. Well, where do we start? Well, let's start with verse 14. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Now, if that, that phrase rings a bell, do not be conformed, it should. Because in Paul's letter to the Romans in the 12th chapter, he wrote, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Before Christ, we lived in ignorance. Now, ignorance is not the same thing as stupidity. Ignorance just means a lack of information. Once we receive Jesus Christ, so in Christ, we are called to repent of this ignorance. The things that we inherited from our, the futile things that we inherited from our forefathers. We used to be ignorant, but now we know better. And in Acts 17.30, it says, The times of ignorance God overlooked. And wow, does that speak to the character of God. Those times where we were just unknowing, not knowing what the thing, what, which end was up, God overlooked those times. But now, now that we know, now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the word world in righteousness by a man who he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He's stopped talking of Jesus, of course. So now let's take a look at some of the aspects of holiness. This is not intended to be an, an exhaustive exploration, but I just wanted to throw some things your way to get you thinking. So, and the first, the first thought is that holiness is a part of our calling and our relationship with Jesus. It's not an accessory or an option. You know, when you buy a car, uh, you look at the sticker and part of this, the left hand of the sticker says, these are all the things that come standard with the car. And then there's another list of things that if you choose to purchase them, you can add those options to the base model. Well, that's not what's happening here. I will tell you that your relationship in the base model, holiness is a standard feature. Amen? Verse 17 says, And if you call on him his father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So this verse sets up the basic instruction, conduct, your, conduct yourselves. Right? And it's expanded in 1 Thessalonians in chapter 3, where it says, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. And that thought is further refined in Colossians and in the fourth chapter of Thessalonians, where we are to... Be in holiness in a manner that pleases God. Now, pleasing God doesn't mean entertaining him. We don't do things so we can, oh, God's going to love this. He's going to get a good laugh out of this. Or we don't do things so that God loves, oh, wow, look how great. I didn't know you were so good at that. No. Pleasing God means a lot of things. But it does mean that we are being useful to him. And we see that. 
In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 21, where it says, Therefore, <laughs> another therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, sanctified, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. I hope you're catching a theme here. We are to be of use to God. And this is what gives us our focus in our walk. Are we being useful to God? And it doesn't matter what your giftings are. You know, you don't have to be moving mountains to be useful to God. God will use you in some of the smallest ways and sometimes ways you'll never know about. But he will use you if you are available. So holiness is part of our calling and part of our relationship. But holiness is not perfection. Not only is that a different word, they're completely different words, but in Hebrews 7, we realize that perfection is not, in our physical world, is not attainable. And in verse 11, it says, now if per perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under the, the people received the law, what further need would there be for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? So the author of Hebrews is explaining about Jesus being the new high priest. So what I draw from this is that the things that we do in our physical life will not be perfect. Now we are, however, perfected by Jesus in the spirit. In Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, it says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, it's a day of therefores, by the way, let us also lay aside, let us lay aside every weight and sin which so, clings so closely, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So this idea of the founder and perfecter not only re reinforces the idea that we are active participants in our walk, but it also introduces this interesting notion that our faith is imperfect. Hmm. We just read, Jesus is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. If our faith was perfect, it would not need, we would not need Jesus to perfect it, amen? Now, faith, as we know, it's the foundation of the Christian life. It's by faith, we just read earlier, that you receive that free gift of salvation. The Bible also says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. So it follows that if our faith, which is the foundation of our Christian life, is imperfect, then our walk in holiness is also going to be imperfect. And that shouldn't trouble you. That should relieve you. Right? Um, we don't have to worry about that because God has factored all that into the plan. It's not a problem. It's not a fault. That's why I believe it's written, and I'm really glad we sang this song earlier, uh, from Lamentations chapter 3, 22 and 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Though our sins are many, his mercy is more. Amen? 
Now, I don't know about you, but there's been many, many, many days in my life where I woke up and I had to focus on that because the day before, eh. Right? And that's really a good verse to focus in on the fact that there's no more condemnation. And though God expects us to change and make changes, when we make mistakes, right, it's okay because his mercies will never come to an end. Holiness is not perfection. Holiness is also not isolation. So when I think of holiness as being isolation, the first thing that comes to my mind is, you know, monks and monasteries, a monastery that's built on the top of a tall mountain. And, and you know, it's not, it is not representative of all monks and all uh, sects of that, of that type, but it's an idea of where a group of people have disconnected completely from the world uh, so that they can focus on prayer and praise and deep contemplation. And these are all wonderful things. And so that would be the textbook definition of holiness, of being set apart, except Jesus said he doesn't want us to be out of the world. In John 17, 15, he's praying to God and he says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. His great commission sends us into the world in Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you and below, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We see that echoed in chapter 13, verse 47 of the book of Acts, where it says, for the Lord has commanded us saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Brothers and sisters, we cannot do that. We cannot fulfill our great commission if we're locked in a cave or in our room. Amen? Now, that said, if there is a season or a specific time of separation, sometimes you'll hear it called sabbatical, where we do separate for deep reflection, for a deeper study of, of God's word, for a deeper introspection and look into our life, that's a really good thing. And they can, in fact, impact our walk in a very powerful way. Don't miss that part. But it is not the way. It is not the, the, the condition that we are supposed to be in on a regular basis. Okay, so on a practical level, what can we do with this? What do we do with this? Well, for starters, I think it's very clear that we can examine our current lifestyles. Examine your current lifestyle in light of God's word. Right? And that's very important to keep in mind. Not by the world's standards, but by God's standards. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, it says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. So, examine yourself. And then, make the adjustments accordingly. Change the things that you can change. Just like Zacchaeus. As far as we know, he wasn't being forced to extort people. You know, like the mob was, you know, threatening his family or something like that. He was willfully, his lifestyle was willfully defrauding. And then he had the ability to make that change. And he made that change. So change the things you can change. And then seek help for the things that you struggle with. In James chapter 5 verse 16 it says, Therefore, 
confess your sins to one another and pray to one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. In Galatians 6.2, it says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Uh, famous proverb 27.17, iron sharpens iron, one man sharpens another. So in those verses, you see not only guidance for the person needing help, but guidance for the people that are going to provide that help that say, as Christians, brothers and sisters, that's part of our job. If somebody needs help, we can help them. And that's part of our calling. So let me leave you with this final word. And it comes out of Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. And it says, and this is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. And he says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So let's pray. Gracious Father, help us to see our lives the way you see them. Energize and strengthen us to make the changes you call us to make. And may we be so bold that we can seek help when we need it. Let your light shine in us so brightly that all we will know, all will know we are yours. To your glory and honor, in Jesus' name, amen.